24th X-Files Retrospective Podcast, hosted by Bureau 42. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. This week we're looking at Season 1, Episode 4, Conduit. Now, this is another sort of monster of the week. It's a little bit of a mix in terms of how the genres go. It's also the second episode directed by Daniel Sackheim. Sackheim previously directed Deep Throat, the second episode, and he'd only direct three more episodes by the end of the series. The writing was done by the team of Alex Gansa and Howard Gordon. They'd write a few more episodes as a team until 1995, and Howard Gordon would continue working with the project until about 1998. This episode is going to take us to Sioux City, Iowa. So again, we're making the rounds through the states. So I didn't really track it the first time, but as we're going through it in the retrospective, I am tracking how often we hit each state, and I'll do postseason summaries, and we'll see just how long it takes to hit all 50 states, assuming that they actually do. Again, the teaser in this episode does not involve Mulder or Scully in any way. There's a family, they're out camping in the woods. We see them actually lying outside the camper for the most part. The kids are inside, it just pans over, nighttime forest. There's a young boy, a teenage girl, dissolve into mom inside the camper. We see a lot of the exterior view. We see there's a bit of a sunroof, a bit of a transparent roof. It's panning through so far, it's very silent, very serene. There's nothing really out of the ordinary up to this point. All we really have is Mark Snow's music, which, again, as it was in Squeeze, is a lot more about the mood than about the melody. Then there appears to be some sort of earthquake. The mother's thrown out of the bed in the camper. There's incredibly bright lights outside. The fridge is opening. Everything is opening. And she's really terrified. She's not exactly sure what's going on. But she doesn't seem to be panicked like she's not going on. It's just straight fear. It's over in a few seconds. She hears her son yelling outside and she rushes to help him. Now there's a lot of heat here. She touches the doorknob and her hand smolders. She's reacting from the heat, puts an oven mitt on it to get the door open. You know, she's going out to find out why her son is yelling at her. And all he's yelling, Ruby's gone. So his older sister is missing. She looks a little bit left and right. She calls Ruby's name, doesn't get a response. And then she looks up to the sky and she's calling to there. So it was like this woman was actually expecting alien abduction. The My first impression the first time through was, okay, they're making assumptions here. Turns out that was my assumption. So this is a character that has a bit of a history with alien abductions, as we're going to learn in not too long down the road. So again, the credits end goes to that opening sequence. This is pretty much the only time Mark Snow uses melody in any of his music. Most of the time, as I said, it is specifically to evoke just tones and moods and emotions. He's using very unusual instruments or other sound-making. I'm not even sure if some of these are instruments. I cannot place them at all. Some of the backgrounds and some of the songs he's using. But it's it's a bit refreshing to hear a soundtrack that's not aimed for soundtrack sales. It really is just serve the story as it appears on the screen. So from here, we cut back to the FBI headquarters in the J. Edgar Hoover FBI building. And now we're back in Scully's point of view. She's our point of view character meeting with Section Chief Scott Blevins. At this stage in the series... Blevin seems to be the one that they are consistently reporting to, and it's Scully herself that's reporting to him. Mulder has requested that they go out and basically investigate a tabloid headline claiming alien abduction. And Blevins is ready to shut this down and just deny it right now. Scully convinces him to let her play mediator. She figures he's got to have more than this. Blevins isn't convinced. He thinks that it's just a little too personal and Mulder's chasing Samantha, his abducted sister, which is actually a nice way to reintegrate it. A lot of series you'll see do three or four episodes in, at least once in the first three or four episodes. They'll repeat a lot of the background for the initial characters and why it is that they did what they did. This time Blevins pulls out Samantha's actual X-File, hands it to Scully, and 
says, did he tell you about this? Do you understand what's going on? Do you think his judgment is clouded? And Scully's the one she has to sit down and try to work through it. But this is where we start to establish a lot of the locations and a lot of the mythology behind Samantha's abduction, which when it came up in the pilot, we knew it was going to be, or we mentioned it would be a big part of the series. It wasn't just the reason Muller's involved. It is going to be an ongoing story, at least through the first seven seasons, although we didn't know how far it would go at that time. Especially since the creators didn't know how many seasons they were going to get at that point. I don't think any of them expected the X-Files to be this big. At any rate, Scully does manage to negotiate to be that mediator and see what else Mulder has on hand. And that's where she starts to get surprised. She goes down, talks to him, and there it is, another slideshow. As we mentioned in the pilot, we're going to be seeing a lot of slideshows in Mulder's office in the course of the season. This is actually the second time that we've seen Mulder's office. It's not quite as cluttered as it was initially. There's still a lot of pictures on the walls, but that I want to believe poster is not nearly as prominent as it was before. It's not that they moved it, it's the camera doesn't point in that direction. It doesn't become the standard until the creators start to get feedback from the fans. And they did regularly read the boards on Fox and see what the fans were doing there. Mulder says that part of the reason that this case is warranted and that they they should investigate is because it's happening near Lake Okoboji. This is a UFO hotspot. Beyond that, he has Scully pull out and look at some of the files that they had on previous sightings in the same area. And as she's reading off the names of members of a Girl Scout troop who saw this UFO and took pictures of the tiny little instant camera that they had with them, she runs across the name Darlene Morris. This is the mother of the abducted child this time. So this is the woman in the camper who seemed to be reacting out of straight fear, but not so much curiosity. That's enough. Scully's able to push it through, and they can get the 302 approved to come out here. Now, they don't actually spell out, oh yes, it's approved, you can come out here. We just cut right from that slideshow briefing into Iowa. So again, respecting the audience, assuming we can follow what's going on, and assuming we understand the trends. So when they show up at the house, Mulder really starts to focus not so much on Ruby's mother, but on Ruby's brother, Kevin. He's not completely unresponsive. He's sort of tied up in his own world, just doodling in the corner, watching TV. And while his his mother, Denise, is going through saying, you know, I knew if I yell about long enough, I get someone's attention, but I wasn't expecting the FBI. Mulder sees Kevin just sitting at the table with a Sharpie working on paper. So meanwhile, they go into the kitchen, and Scully is playing the skeptic during the investigation. Before they get to the kitchen, though, you see Mulder stop, and he's looking at the pictures on the mantel, please. So this this is the first clear indication to the audience that this isn't just another case for him. It is ringing very close to home. He ends up running his fingers across a picture of Ruby on the mantel. This is the girl sitting next to a pool. Just in the bathing suit, smiled. Almost the same pose and almost the same outfit that his sister, Samantha, had in the picture that's included in the X-File. So it's really hitting close to home for him. Then we cut to the kitchen, and Denise is going through telling her story. When I say Scully's playing the skeptic, she's running through exactly what you'd expect. I mean, the daughter's gone. Scully's asking, okay, was your divorce messy, right? Was there a custody battle? The mom maintains it's not her ex-husband, which is probably the case, given that she's still using her maiden name. We knew that from when she was a Girl Scout, so unless she was married as a Girl Scout, Morris is her maiden name, and the kids also have the last name Morris. Mulder gets permission to go out and talk to Kevin and see what's going on with him. After he leaves the room, Dennis turns to Scully and says, you know, I've been talking to people about my experiences all the time, and they all get this look in your eye, the same look you have now. So she's calling her out as a non-believer. She's basically saying, you think I'm full of crap, and I know it, but this is what happened. Scully's reaction, again, Jillian Anderson is playing it very well this time. It's just a very subtle look down, still professional, but she does break eye contact. It is bugging her. Cut from there, and Mulder comes up to talk to Kevin, who's doing his doodling in front of the TV now. But the TV is not tuned into any particular station. It's just static and snow. He's been having nightmares, but he doesn't want to talk about it. 
What he is doing is just writing down a series of ones and zeros on a pad of paper. Mulder asks what it is, and he doesn't really know. All he knows is it's coming from there, pointing at the TV. Now, I don't know where they found this little boy, and I don't know how much of it was coaching and how much it was the kind of performance Daniel Sackheim could get out of a child actor, but Joel Palmer does it very well. He can give this look where you aren't really comfortable with who this kid is, and he really can kind of freak you out and creep you out a little. So next we see Mulder faxing these ones and zeros out to, to someone he knows who could try and find a signal or a pattern in it, and it's clearly a bartering. He's really pulling in a favor. You know, he's offering Redskins tickets, talks to the local sheriff, and the sheriff has basically written the case off. As far as he's concerned, Mum has an incredibly active imagination, and he's also looking at the history of Ruby Morris, which we haven't learned up to this point. She has a history of running away from home. Uh, she has more than one boyfriend. He figures the way she's been living her life, something bad's going to happen to her. He's been pulling her out of ditches, puking her guts out. She's been out overnight. He's just, as far as he's concerned, this is basically the life she's put herself on. And he's not at all surprised that things went wrong. But well, they're still pushing and pushing enough that they're getting thrown out. And he's started to burn some bridges in this area. So as they're leaving, Scully's pointing out, just like she was playing the politician through squeeze and helping him through that, she's saying here, you know, you may not want to antagonize local law enforcement. They come out and there's a note on the car saying, I'm across the street, follow me. They see a young woman standing outside a public building, rush across the street to follow her. In the close-up, we could see this is a library. They're going through, and again, they find her in the stacks. And once again, there's a lot of respect for the audience. They're not spelling things out in complete detail. They're assuming we could fill in a lot of the blanks in the conversations. She says, you're looking for Ruby. That's right. So she knows who the case is. And again, Scully's the one stepping forward. So it is much more of the equal partnership now than it was in the first two episodes. So this girl is acting as an informant. She's staying silent, saying, yeah, she had some good times together. We didn't really have friends. She just had people she hung out with. And she's saying, no, she's supposed to see her boyfriend, Greg Randall. That night, they're supposed to meet up at the lake. They had stuff to talk about when they pushed. She's saying, well, Greg got her pregnant. Or, you know, she got herself pregnant, whatever. So now they've got a pretty viable suspect for a mundane solution to the case, which is actually going to be taking this episode in a different direction than we're used to seeing and not really one that's expected. Then someone else shelves books in the backgrounds, drops it. Their informant takes this opportunity to disappear. So they never find out what her name is at this point. She's just another teenage girl about Ruby's age who gives him a lead on who to track down. So they head to the Pennsylvania pub, which is where the boyfriend is supposed to work. Again, we see the high class of the guest stars that x is establishing early on. This time, the barkeeper is Donald Gibb. He's not one of those ones that I even knew by name. I had to look his name up doing this podcast. But he's one of those guys where you see him and you go, oh, hey, it's that guy. He's got 87 names to his credit in the IMDb. He's just one of those guys with a physical type, absolutely massive. Honestly, kind of looks a bit like Peter Jackson. Lots of guest spots on TV. He tends to play a particular physical type. In this case, he's a biker, and he's got a UFO tattooed on his arm. That doesn't come up right away. What comes up first is that this Greg Randall that's being accused of hurting Ruby hasn't been into work in about three weeks. So when Mulder spots the tattoo, he doesn't openly admit right away that he's a believer in the UFOs. He's trying to draw it out, saying, well, hey, do you believe it? He's like, no, no, I think it's just people howling crazy at the moon. And the bartender's telling him, you need to come out to Lake Okobogie with us. You'll see some things that might change your mind. And he pulls his hair back and shows his ear is just horribly scarred and malformed. He says, get a killer sunburn in the middle of the night. So massive burns from intense heat. Mulder is very clearly interested. So he's basically made up his mind about the only thing that can cause that heat. Scully, as usual, appears skeptical. 
Cut back to the hotel they're in, 5.30 a.m. Scully's asleep. She sees some figures outside the window, and she's starting to realize that, no, this isn't just normal people walking down the hall. They're trying her door. So now she's awake and she's alert. She realizes her gun's on the other side of the room. So she gets out of bed, heads, grabs her gun. These guys break in before she can get it. She's got the flashlights on her. They're saying, where's Mulder? At this point, it turns out that these guys are government agents asking where he got the document. And Mulder's not really clear about what document they're talking about. We don't know right away. There's... Just a series of ones and zeros. It's everything that Kevin was putting on the piece of paper that Mulder faxed over to have analyzed. Turns out, turns out it's a fragment of a very important DOD transmission. These guys are NSA demanding to know everything Mulder knows about this case. What's going on? Who's doing this? Where did you get this? As far as they're concerned, this is a major national security issue. Mulder's playing it cool. He's deliberately trying not to give them anything. And this is how he actually finds out what the document is. He refuses to give them a word unless they tell him what he's looking at. And he's clearly surprised, but, you know, he's not giving them any information. Call comes in the walkie-talkie, they say, oh, we got it. So now, apparently, Scully has turned over the kid. Again, this isn't spelled out, they just say, we got it. Scully comes out of her room, and Mulder immediately says, great. You had, you shouldn't have told them, they had no jurisdiction. Again, respect for the audience. They don't spell it out, they just assume we could follow the conversation and figure things out exactly the same way Mulder did. He even points out it's pretty paranoid to think that Kevin is a major security threat. He says, they call me paranoid. So they follow the NSA agents to the Morris home, and these guys are ripping the bedroom apart. Again, we're seeing some of the tension between the leads here. So Mulder is the believer. He does want to turn these guys in, and he's clearly guilty, and he hates what these people are going through. And he's somewhat blaming himself. You don't openly see him blame Scully, but he knows he brought this to their home and he did this to them. He even goes up to the car to try and talk to Denise, try and reassure her, especially after she and Kevin are separated into two different vehicles by the agents. And she will not look at him. She will not communicate through the window at all. She's she's definitely blaming he and Scully for what's happened to her son and what's happening to her family. NSA agents go inside and they find a drawer just filled with pages that have these ones and zeros. You know, Mulder's going through and he's cleaning up after them, saying, oh, you guys do delicate work. You know, there's a smashed piggy bank. There's broken things all over the place. On their way out, they thank Scully for giving them what they needed. Mulder heads over to the window. It looks like he's just staring, not really looking at anything. And this is when he gets the next major step in the case. So the roof of the camper that they have is completely scorched. This has been covered in something. So he gets at a stepladder, goes to investigate, and this is where he finds the ashes. This is where he knows, yeah, this has been burned. So there's been intense heat, just like the kind that burned the bartenders here. Again, you can see a little bit about you know, how they're keeping the budget. There seems to be just one region that has actual ash, and the rest is just dark and painted, but they, they kept the budget tight. So that's the one part he interacts with. From here, they cut to the analysts who are looking at the actual ones and zeros that Kevin had. And they're talking about how all well information is rendered digitally, and they're showing a variety of things that they could have. Now, this part doesn't quite sit well with me. Uh, the ones and zeros that he has, they're just regular 8.5 by 11 single-sided pages. Now, we know that 8-bit transmissions, it takes eight ones and zeros to make a single letter. And it takes a lot more than a single letter to make some images. And on these 77 pages, they're finding parts of the Brandenburg Concerto, parts of Leonardo da Vinci's work. They're finding all sorts of major pieces, Shakespearean sonnets, just a variety of pulp culture. And I just, I don't see how the 77 pages that they have are enough data to put together the bits and pieces of everything they found. It just, it rubs me the wrong way, because all they needed to do was quote a higher number. Instead of 77 pages, Kevin could have put out hundreds of pages in the past few days, and it could have almost been feasible. 
While Kevin and Denise are being released, Mulder and Scully are there to greet them. And she basically says, leave us alone. I just want my daughter back. Mulder's going, no, your son has seen something. And he's trying to push, but she's protecting her son. She just wants to be left alone at this point. She goes to pick her son up. And this is when the viewer notices he's just been standing by the security guards staring at the monitors. So he's seeing monitors everywhere. And he has seen this data come through, even in the snow on the channel. So as they're driving out, Scully notices that they passed the Sioux City exit. So she's going, okay, where are we going? And Mulder's going... The boy's the key, Scully. I know it. The obsession with helping the boy that is probably reminding him of himself is just starting to take over. And even Scully admits that the explanation that it's a statistical aberration doesn't make any sense. She's saying it's not much of an explanation. This is where Mulder is saying he's a conduit of some kind. And he really punches the word conduit, the title of this episode. Just, again, throws me off a little bit. The reason they're not going to, to Sioux City is because Mulder believes that whatever happened to them, like Okiboji, is just thinks whatever it is, it's inhuman, and going out there is the only way to find evidence of the abduction and to figure out what happened. So that's where they're heading to Lake Okiboji. They get there and they're checking out the campsite. And looking at the police photos, Mulder heads out to the beach that's just a few feet away by the lake. You know, Scully's saying, you know, they're not far from the forest wall, and we could have just run out of the forest and grabbed her. So she's still looking for the mundane solutions. Mulder's the one that notices the tree line has been scorched as though it's extreme heat. But again, it's not the trees down to the ground. I mean, Scully's claiming it could have been an electrical storm, but it doesn't fit. Mulder finds a block of glass, and it's not... It's not like a broken bottle, it's actually sand that has been sheared into glass. Now again, I get why it establishes extreme heat, but it's miles from the trees that have been scorched. It's one part of the beach, and there's nothing scorched in between except the roof of the camper. It just doesn't quite add up. You'd expect that there would have to be more heat damage in between. This is when Scully notices a wolf coming out of the woods. She grabs Mulder, the wolf heads back into the woods, and Mulder chases it. So he's following this thing to its prey. He finds a group of wolves piled over what appears to be a pretty rickshaw grave. So Mulder pulls his gun, fires it, scares the wolves off. And again, the obsession is starting to take over. This does look like a handmade grave. Scully's running in after the gunshot. She finds Mulder. He knows it's a grave. The stench is just tremendous. It's got to be a shallow grave. And he starts unearthing it. And Scully's the one that has to get in there and stop him going, what are you doing? You are disturbing a crime scene. So again, there is some procedural element and she is the voice of caution, but she has to stop him and keep him on track. Remind him, if you need to prove it, you need to have evidence. He's saying, I need to know what if it's her. Scully doesn't say anything. We leave it there. You can tell if she's gotten through. Well, cut to commercial, come back. And there's Mulder and Scully watching as they exhume the grave. But it turns out this is not Ruby's grave. Instead, it's Greg Randall. This is the guy who is being blamed for Ruby's disappearance. As they're going through the wallet, they find a slip of paper with an appointment with a doctor. So they look at the doctor's note and compare it to the note that they had on their vehicle, the I'm across the street, follow me. It's a rudimentary handwriting comparison, but just the style of the handwriting, it's clear this is the same girl. It's the small town mentality. Sheriff's going, oh yeah, that doc's a buddy of mine, delivered both of my kids, I could find out who had that appointment. So apparently you don't need warrants, you just need to know the guy. So they bring the informant in and confront her, and this is basically when they realize what's going on. They're doing the good cop, bad cop thing. Scully's the good cop, and Mulder has just been set off. He's looking for Ruby, and he realizes this girl fed them a line of crap. Ruby wasn't pregnant. She was. Greg was the father. She was the one that confronted him. She bumped off Greg. When Ruby disappeared, she just used that to her advantage. Of course, playing bad cop, Mo's the one saying, oh, no, 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 this was you. You killed them both. Why did you bury her? And pushes her into saying she wasn't even there to basically catch her in the lie saying earlier on that she wasn't there herself. So this is probably a big piece of why the X-Files continue to be funded. As I mentioned, a lot of the cases don't have a lot of closure, but in this early case, they still haven't solved the kidnapping, but they both discovered and solved a murder. 
And that doesn't really get mentioned a whole lot for the rest of the episode. Basically, they caught her, but it's not the case that they're working on. It's not the X-File. So they kind of ignored the fact from that point on that they caught a murderer, aside from the fact that that was a dead end, now they need to find something else. After the interrogation, it's Scully basically trying to force Mulder to face the very likely reality that Ruby's dead. She's saying, like, they're scouring the woods, they're going to be dragging the lake, and he's the one insisting that they're wasting their time. Ruby wasn't there that night, so he's really hanging on to the whole abduction thing. And this is the point where you can tell Scully gets it, and she's the one that pushes him. She's the one that confronts him and says, stop chasing Samantha basically gets him to confront the real motivation and why he will not give up on this case. At least that's her perspective. But even after she confronts him, even after he says that, and we kind of see, no, he's really doing this for the victim. Mulder's heading out to talk to Kevin, basically saying, until they find a body, I am not giving up on that girl. So there is a personal element to it, but again, there is an element where he really is doing this for Ruby. When he shows up at the Morris home to try and get Mrs. Morris's permission to talk to Kevin again, the door is ajar, there's nobody home. This time it's a little bit different. So the pages with the ones and zeros left in front of the TV, they weren't piled up, they weren't left in a drawer like they were before, they're spread out all over the floor. Now, it looks like they left in a hurry. They left the TV on, as I said, the door was ajar and unlocked. Scully finds a teapot whistling on the stove. She comes back out and she's asking Mulder, okay, what do all these pages mean? So he's staring at them and he doesn't know, but he's not giving up. He's sitting there searching for the meaning. He's trying to figure out what this is about. So Scully goes to check upstairs and I'm thinking now this, yeah, I'm not sure what Darlene Morris does for a living. Maybe she had a great settlement for paternity, but it is a pretty decent house with a balcony. It's the kind of nice big roomy house that a lot of these location shooting series happen to find from pretty much every character they have. So they have lots of room for the camera crews to come in and move around. From the balcony, they realize that the ones and zeros in this case form a mosaic, and this mosaic is a portrait of Ruby. So from there, they're heading back to Lake Okomboji. And again, it's a long shot. They didn't know where they are. And Mulder's starting to open up a bit. And he's talking about how he had this ritual as a kid. Every time he walked into his room, he walked in with his eyes closed. And he had convinced himself one of these days he'll open his eyes, and Samantha would be there just lying in bed like nothing ever happened. And even to this day, he's still walking into that room every day of his life. So again, it opens up a little bit, and Scully can understand she's not going to fight him too much. It's just after this that they spot the camper. So they pull their car over and come out to investigate again. So they find the camper's also empty, but this time there's a trailhead. They're running out, and they find Darlene screaming. They rush after her. She's just crouched over, panting. So And she's saying, it's here. I saw it. Mulder's saying, where's Kevin? Mom's going, I couldn't keep up with him. So Scully stays with Darlene while Mulder rushes after Kevin. And he finds him going over crest of the hill into the fog, and there's a bright light coming up over the hill. So again, it's shades of that pilot episode where only Mulder saw the supernatural event. So I'm going into the woods, the bright light. He goes chasing after Kevin. He doesn't want Kevin to be abducted again. This one plays out a little bit differently, though. The bright light is not a single bright light. It's a collection of the headlights for the biker gang that likes to come out here. So Mulder ends up grabbing Kevin, holding him to the ground, and essentially shielding him as the biker gang comes ripping through the woods. Again, it's showing a fairly effective way to stretch the budget. There's a few things that we're going to notice are pretty different, especially compared to later seasons. I mean, right now, Mulder and Scully are running through the woods with their flashlights. We see a lot of that, but this time they're mag lights. And while mag lights may be standard and typical, it's not really typical of what the characters ultimately do, and they're going to get a major upgrade coming along later. Now, Kevin is saying, I know Ruby's out here. I know it. When they hear Scully screaming for Mulder, Mulder grabs his hand, pulls her back. They found Ruby. She's in the woods. She's unconscious, but she's still alive. Scully's a medical doctor. She's the one administering CPR while Mulder goes to get help. 
They visit her in the hospital, and they come in when it's just Ruby and Kevin in the room. They come to visit her in the hospital, and as they're going, Scully's looking over the chart, and she notices a few anomalies. Muller asks specifically about a couple of other anomalies, see if she has these, and Scully says, yes, both. How'd you know? He says, astronauts have also reported these imbalances. They're a sign of prolonged weightlessness. So they knock on the door, they come in, it's just Kevin and Ruby in there at this point. They greet her, and Muller's saying, where were you, what's been going on, what's been happening? And Kevin tells Ruby, it's okay, he knows. So you tell Ruby's ready to open up. She even says, you know, Mom said you might be coming by. She's sighing. She says she's fine. She's not really opening up too much. Before she can, even with Kevin telling her it's okay, he knows, Darlene comes in and basically throws them out. And here we get a very different perspective. So she's saying that they told me not to say. So Ruby's withholding the information on purpose. And it's because Darlene has been coaching her to do that. Darlene has been called crazy her entire life. She does not want her child to be ostracized and ridiculed like she was. So she even pulls Muller and Scully out of the room saying, can we talk outside? Can we talk in the hallway? So again, they're stonewalled. They don't have concrete evidence of the alien abduction, and they're not going to get it. Because this time, even the people who believe, they don't want it revealed because of what will happen to the family, what will happen to her daughter. She just wants to make sure her kids can live normal lives. It's when she opens up about this, and when she opens up about what's been happening to her, the mother's starting to understand. The truth has caused her nothing but heartache. She does not want the same thing for her. Mulder's saying it doesn't have to be the same, but he can't make any promises. Mulder's not really willing to let this go. He's going back to talk to Kevin. Skelly restrains him, and this time he lets her, and he storms off. The episode wraps up with the two of them kind of separated. So Scully's going through all the post-hypnotic regression sessions that Mulder had with his therapist. They're part of Samantha's file. So she's clearly trying to understand Mulder. Right? She's listening to his account of the events, trying to get into his head. And this is a voiceover. It cuts to Mulder, who's sitting in the dark in a church, and he's just holding a picture of Samantha and just starts to cry. It's a pretty powerful moment. The only thing that throws me is that as the series progresses, Mulder is established as the atheist, and Scully's the one that believes in God. So I'm, I question whether Mulder would be in a church when he has this breakdown, or whether it would have been somewhere else. Whether it's the apartment, whether it's his office, I don't know. On the whole, it's a fairly strong episode, but again, of the first four episodes, we have three episodes that are all about alien abduction. This is the first one that doesn't show a sign of government involvement. This is just the regular... This is just the regular skepticism of the public. Now, the shift to the monster of the week is about to really happen. In fact, of the next 12 episodes, only one of them is in any way involving alien abduction. And then again, as we're getting into the end of the season, there's only two more. So we have 20 episodes left in the season. Only three of them involve the alien abduction conspiracy. So we've got 17 monster of the weeks coming, and some of them do a very nice job of setting things up between our characters and establishing their home lives. Thank you again for joining us for the fourth episode of the Bureau 42 Retrospective Podcast. Two weeks from now, we're going to be talking about The Jersey Devil, another episode written by Chris Carter. Intro and outro music is Outside Poolside by Lastwell, created under the Creative Commons license. The rest of this podcast, copyright Bureau 42, 2013.